0: John chapter 12 if you need a Bible just raise your hand there should be some in the pews or the pews we don't have pews we used to have pews now we have chairs and the chairs in front of you there should be some Bibles if there's not just raise your hand we'll make sure you get one Uh, it's good for you to have a Bible because as we go verse by verse you can follow along with us Uh, but this morning we're going to be looking in three places and so I'm going to give you time to turn there we're going to be looking at John chapter 12 so save your place there We're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 2 and also Daniel chapter 9. We'll be looking at all three of those places. Um, You remember when you were kids, uh, some of you that are younger may not uh, have done this, but the game hide and seek. Do you remember that? Where someone would go hide and the other person had to close their eyes uh, and count to whatever number. And then when you got done counting, What did you say? Ready or not, here I come. Right? Ready or not, here I come. That's what we're going to be seeing this morning. That's the title of today's teaching. Basically, that's what Jesus is saying. Ready or not, here I come. And we're going to see what is known as the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, all those things. Uh, Jesus has been in Bethany, but as we look through Scripture, we see that when He's in Jerusalem... He stays in Bethany uh, quite a bit. Uh, There's several people that he knows there, certainly the house of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, as we've seen, he stays there. Uh, But that's kind of a place for him to go to get out of the city and stay. And, you know, it's not that far. Um, It's about two miles from Jerusalem, and it's about the same distance as it is from uh, Brookside Gardens out here to the intersection at the 287 bypass. That's about two miles. You may ask, how would you know that? I checked yesterday. I was driving through there, and I thought I got to get a gauge for two miles, what that is, so we can kind of see if you're walking, how how far is that, you know? And so, it's really not that far, I guess, till you go to walk it, you know, and it's a distance. This is pretty flat through town and out to there. It's a little different here because you're going, you're always going up to Jerusalem, pretty much wherever you are in the country. Uh, Jerusalem's a high point, so you're always going up. So going to Jerusalem, a little bit of a strenuous activity, but coming back to Bethany wouldn't have been quite as bad. So it's a short walk, steep, but it is short. So hold your place in John and turn turn to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. And I want to try to tie some things together for us this morning. Some of you that have studied uh, history and prophecy in the old testament this will be a repeat for you be familiar for you but for those of you that haven't uh it's it's very fascinating to see what uh, god has for us here before we start reading in john chapter 2 let's pray father we thank you for this morning we thank you for your word what it has for us and father how we can open up The Old Testament, the New Testament, wherever we are in Scripture, you are speaking to us. You have something for us. And Lord, that's true uh, this morning as we look at your word. So Father, uh, open our minds uh, to what you have for us, and Lord, we look forward to that as we can apply it in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Nehemiah chapter 2, starting with verse 1, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, the The 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. This is Nehemiah. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So so I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my fathers, the tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? So Nehemiah, speaking here of what? Jerusalem, right? We know that uh, they were brought out of Jerusalem uh, into Babylon and been captive there. They would be there for 70 years. So they're captive there, and Nehemiah is sad because he hears a report of what the city is like. The king said to me, "What do you request?" So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, this is probably what we would refer to as a popcorn prayer, in that you're in the middle of a situation, something comes up, and you know you need to pray quick. So you get that prayer up there as quick as you can before the Lord, before you even open your mouth again. Um, I've done that at times, and sometimes I haven't. And the times that I haven't, didn't always turn out well. You know, you're stumbling over your words. <laughs> you're you're trying to figure out what to say. But praying to the Lord, and the Lord guides you and gives you the words to communicate in that situation. So we see what Nehemiah says here. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, With the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of that region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertains to the temple, for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So Nehemiah makes this request, the king uh, answers his request and makes a decree uh, to, to Nehemiah and to all who would hear and know uh, that, that this, the king was all for this. Okay, so this decree goes forth on March 14th, 445 B.C. I keep that date in mind, March 14th, 445 B.C. Most biblical scholars will agree that that's when this took place. Uh, there are some of those that would come with a different twist and say, you know, but I think that we're going to see as we go through this, boy, just the way God works got to be the right date got to be the right date so 445 bc march 14th now flip over to daniel real quick daniel chapter 9 and we're going to see when we read this uh there's more prophecy going forth here as daniel hears it daniel chapter 9 starting at verse 20 Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. I want to stop there for a second. What was Daniel praying? This is a good pattern for prayer. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, who are our people? We live in the United States. As we're praying... Confessing the sin in our own lives, the things that we've fallen short in, and certainly knowing that our country has as well, right? This, this is a good pattern for prayer for us. Uh, he said, yes, in verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, "O oh, Daniel i have now come forth to give you skill to understand at the beginning of your supplications the command went out and i have come to tell you for you are greatly beloved therefore consider the matter and understand the vision again as we're praying to the lord we can consider ourselves greatly beloved each one of us as we know the lord the lord loves us so we can consider ourselves greatly beloved And He wants us to understand things as well. In this particular case, it's a vision, and God's going to give him the understanding to see this. Verse 24, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. To mark this for six things, for six purposes. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So six things there. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which we just read in Nehemiah, right? We just saw that decree go out. That's what it's talking about. Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Or if you're good at math, 69 weeks, right? The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many, one week, seven years, but in the middle of the week, He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So a lot of stuff going on there. What we're going to focus on is kind of the first half of that. And so where it's talking about these weeks, uh, it makes mention of this to restore and uh, build Jerusalem until the Messiah, uh, the Prince. So prophecy goes forth here. Look at verse 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, first of all, to help us gain understanding, the word weak in Hebrew, I am not a Greek Hebrew scholar. I made that very clear before. But there are some times that knowing that is very helpful. And the word for weak in Hebrew is heptad. Heptad, H-E-P-T-A-D. I have no idea why, if that's the way it's pronounced. It could be heptad or heptad. or I don't know, it's, but I'm going to say heptad. That's the word in Hebrew for, for week. So just like a decade means 10 or a dozen means 12, heptad means seven. Now this could mean seven days, seven weeks, or seven years. But in this case, it refers to seven years. Now, how do we know that? Well, there's a principle of Bible interpretation called the principle of first mention. Some people adhere to this very strictly, some don't, but it's very helpful, especially in this case. So if you want to know the meaning of a given term, go to the first place that it's mentioned in the Bible. And there you may, you can find the key to understanding that better. Not always, but most of the time, that's very helpful. So in Genesis 29, we find the first use of this Hebrew word, heptad. Do you you remember the story of Jacob and Rachel? It's a uh, soap opera, (laughs) if you will, in the Old Testament. Jacob fell in love with Rachel, Laban's daughter. So we have Jacob, we have Laban, we have Rachel, his daughter. And Jacob wants to marry Rachel. So Laban says, Jacob... In order to take my daughter's hand in marriage, you have to work for me for seven years in order to marry Rachel. You know, in some ways, I think that's a principle we should put back into practice. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Okay. So, after the seven years, uh, the seven years of Jacob working for Laban, the wedding ceremony took place. But lo and behold, when Jacob woke up the next morning, he found out that he had married Leah, Rachel's sister, instead. Freak out time. I mean, wouldn't that just kind of throw you off your game a little bit? You thought you were marrying someone, and that's not who it was. So, obviously, Jacob's a little upset with Laban. And he says, I worked for for seven years for Rachel, and yet uh, I get Leah. And so, uh, Laban explained to him that it was their custom that the older daughter always had to be, get married first. Laban says, but if you work for me for seven more years, you can have Rachel as well. So Jacob did that. He worked for seven more years. Laman says in verse 27 in uh, Genesis 29, fulfill her week and we will give you Rachel in another seven years. This fulfill her week the word used for that is heptad, that Hebrew word for one week. So Laban was talking about a week of seven years. So a week meaning seven years. Does, does that make sense? Uh, well, I'm glad it makes sense to you, because I, I still don't fully comprehend it sometimes. It's just like, well, a week's a week, and a uh, day's a day, and uh, that's not the case here speaking about a week, which is seven years. So that's the key for us to understand what's going on in this prophecy here. So Daniel was told that 69 weeks, or if you apply that week-to-year thing, 483 years would pass between what? The time that the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem and the time that Messiah would come. So in verse 25 it says, seven weeks and 62 weeks well seven weeks if you do the math would be 49 years to rebuild jerusalem which is exactly what it took was 49 years imagine that and in verse 26 it says that after 62 weeks messiah is cut off so stay with me on this there's a lot of numbers and a lot of math uh, I had to write it down myself just to, just to stay with it. But So on March 14th, 445 B.C., the decree was given by Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. How long did it take? 49 years, or seven weeks of seven years. Seven times seven, 49, right? If you begin on March 14th, 445 B.C., and use the Jewish calendar of 360 days a year, 69 weeks, or 483 years, brings you to, exactly, to the day, April 6th, A.D. 32. Now, what happened on that day? What of significance happened? It's the very event that we're looking at here in John 12, 12-15 through this morning. When Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. You remember in Daniel? 69 weeks until Messiah the Prince prophesied to the very day. It's the triumphal entry of Jesus, Palm Sunday by tradition as we know it. Why? Why do they call it Palm Sunday? Well, let's read John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The next day this this multitude come to the feast and they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And verse 13 says, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. So everyone had come to prepare for the feast of the Passover. It was a a big deal. A lot of people. Uh, There's estimates that say well over a million people would be pouring in to the streets of Jerusalem during this time. That's a lot of people. I don't know... Uh, You know, you you can kind of tell how the city was laid out if you take a trip to Israel. When I was there in 07, we had the opportunity to move around in there. And a million people, that's a lot of people for a very small area. Just a lot. So uh, Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, has his disciples with him, and he has a great many of the Jews that came to see him and Lazarus. We saw that uh, last week in verse 9. So he has many walking with him, and a great multitude that came out to meet him, and they came with palm branches. Why? Why would they do that? Well, a little more history. About 200 years earlier than this day, this scene, that would have been during the 400 silent years between the Old and New Testament, the Jews were under the rule of this guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he... He, he was terrible. I mean, he bludgeoned the Jews into submission. Bad, bad king under, this, under his rule. After several years of this, there's a guy by the name of Judas Maccabee that rebelled against him. And after a long nine years of battle, uh, Judas Maccabee and all his boys finally drove Epiphanes and his army completely out of Jerusalem. Well, the people celebrated greatly because of this. And during that time, they were waving palm branches. There's an Old Testament reference to that. That's probably where they got it. And from that point on, the Jewish coin depicted palm branches on the back uh, as a symbol of deliverance uh, from oppression. So a military leader led them out of oppression by overthrowing those who had them in bondage. So here we have 200 years later, under the bondage of Rome, a perceived new leader was on the scene. Blessed is the conquering king whom God Himself has sent to us. That's basically what the people are crying because they see Jesus as what? A king who would conquer and lead them out of bondage to Rome. That's the way that they perceived Him. Now, not all of them. All of them had come, not, uh, there were many that had come to know Him through His ministry. But yet, still in the back of their minds, even them, because we know that even from His disciples, that wow, this is going to be the guy, you know, what? What did uh, a couple of the brothers say to him? When you come into your kingdom, you know, I want to sit on your left hand. Actually, it was their mom that asked that, but uh, I guess they, they thought if, if mom asked this, maybe we can get away with it. I don't know. But uh, they were still perceiving that he would be uh, a king. This is the deliverer that they were waiting for. They, they cry out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What? The king of Israel. This is the one sent by God, Messiah, the prophesied one. Hosanna, meaning save now, I pray. They didn't understand, they didn't know that He was coming on the scene to save the people from what? Their sin. They thought He was coming to save them from bondage and oppression. He comes in the name of the Lord. He is to be our King, the King of Israel. Now of all that they had heard of Jesus, His miracles The feeding of the 5,000, the people that he had healed, his teaching, even the way that he stood up to the religious elite. He was very bold in front of them, wasn't he? When you're God, you can do that, you know? (laughs) He would make a great king, not just in the way they thought, not the way that they were thinking. Now, it is interesting here, too, because if a prince who would be king would come riding into any city, there would be much celebration, without a doubt. And he would probably be riding on the finest of steeds, wouldn't he? Big horse, strong horse. But we know from the other gospel accounts that he sends his disciples to get what? A donkey. A donkey of all things. Now, I looked up some facts about donkeys. I just thought you guys would find this very interesting. If you don't, (laughs) well... (laughs) I'm going to tell you anyway, so the average lifespan of a donkey is 25 to 40 years, up to 60 years a donkey uh, can live. Uh, George Washington owned the first donkeys in America, became a donkey breeder over time. George Washington did. His favorite pastime, not George Washington's, but the donkeys, is rolling in the dirt. They have very long ears, as we know, that enable them for hearing but it's also to help keep them cool not only do they transport burdens and people but in some areas donkeys are actually used as guard animals now can you imagine that you'll see this slide beware of donkey <laughs> that just sends fear through all of us doesn't it i mean you walk up and ha, ah, it's a donkey beware of donkey Verse 14 says, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as, it as it is written. Verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Which fulfills prophecy, doesn't it? This was written in the Old Testament. That he would come into Jerusalem, that he would make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You can take that down now. <laughs> uh, He'd come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. This is prophecy that they would recognize. They knew the Old Testament. They knew what was going on. But they kind of took it out of context, didn't they? they? They tried to fit what was being said into their way of thinking that this, this Messiah was going to be their king in a totally different way than what uh, they had uh, perceived. So they do, this, they do see it as a fulfillment of prophecy because how many would-be kings would come riding into town on a donkey? That would be a real a clue for us, wouldn't it? It was like, okay, well, let me think back the Old Testament, I don't see that many kings riding into town on a donkey. He must be the one. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They recognized him for what he could be for them, just not who he really was. They had their own preconceived notions of what he would do for them. They wanted a deliverer. They wanted a savior, but to deliver and save them from the bondage of Rome. It should make us think. It should make us ponder. How do you, how do I, how do, how do we see Jesus? What do we hope that we can get from Him? Do we see Him as Savior and Lord always? Or someone who can bail us out, help us with our problems, give us what we need? The equivalent of placing a 911 call to Jesus. We've all been there, haven't we? Those emergency prayers that go up, it's 911 to Jesus because we're in the middle of a, of a tough time here. And that's okay, sure. He can handle that. He can do all those things. He is, as scripture says, an ever present help in time of need. But what about when things are going good for us? When we don't feel like we need any help, everything's moving along just fine. When our needs are being met, do we still praise Him still? Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus. As he wept, right before he called Lazarus out of the tomb, it says he wept. In Luke's account of this scene that we're looking at this morning, we're going to see that Jesus is weeping again. Turn to Luke chapter 19. Hold your place in John. I know we're jumping around a lot this morning, but I think this will give us better insight to this event that's taking place. Luke chapter 19. Starting at verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone ask you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to him, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. I've wanted to try that actually, you know. Be somewhere... Where there's a nice new Corvette sitting alongside the street, walk up to it, start to open the door, and someone, hey, 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 what are you doing? The Lord has need of it, just to see if it would work. You know, don't recommend that unless the Lord has actually sent you to get the Corvette. You know, which I don't know about you guys, but that hasn't happened with me yet. Um, you know, maybe someday it will. I can always hope, right? Uh, So, verse 35, Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave, you, uh, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So in this scene, it's the same scene as we see in John with a few added statements from Luke's perspective. In verses 39 through 40, we see that some of the Pharisees called to Him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell your disciples to quit saying that. They are claiming you to be Messiah. Tell them to stop saying that. And Jesus' answer to this is full of truth and full of rebuke. What does He say? I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus is saying, This is going to be said because I am here and it's prophesied that I be here on this very day Is ordained by God and they're going to respond in the way that they're supposed to respond regardless of what you Pharisees think. As time passes, we look back and we see and learn and understand as God has moved in our lives, as God has done things in our lives reasons we can't even explain at the time it's it's a faith builder for us isn't it you know as we look back over the years and see the hand of God guiding providing doing his work in our lives and we reflect on that and we just go wow it's it's just amazing what God has done you know just in the time that uh, we've been here. I had opportunity yesterday. I did Mike and Carrie's wedding yesterday morning down in Longmont, and there was a young man and his wife that are just starting to get involved with the new ministry in Windsor. And he came over and introduced himself. He was a friend of Mike's. And I just had the opportunity to talk to him for a while, and I, I just thought it was amazing that as I started talking with him and sharing with him, uh, I just rattled on. It just, it just come out, you know. And most of you that know me, that's, you know, right along my personality anyway, but it was all about what God has done and sharing how God got this started and the way that God provided and all the things that God has done. And it's just, I'm just in awe of it. And he asked me, he said, well, did it surprise you? And I said, well, you know, at first I used that term, this, this is, man, God's just surprising. And it's like, what, why should it surprise me? It's God, right? It should never surprise me. I should just be in awe of it. I should be in awe of what he's doing, not only in my own personal life, the life of my family, but also this family here as well. And it's just such a faith builder. You know, it brings you to that point where you're like, I'm just going to trust God because he has never let me down. There are times that maybe I perceived he did, but he never has. He will never leave me or forsake me. He's always there for me to guide me. He always has the best thing for me. Uh, For years, I would tell both daughters, God has His best for you, so don't settle for sloppy seconds. Okay? Don't do that. We've been fortunate that they didn't. They didn't settle for sloppy seconds. Uh, Brandon's a great young man. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm so happy that they're getting married in a few weeks. It's just, it pleases us very much. How much? Two weeks. What did I say? A few weeks. Okay. Exactly two weeks from today to the day. This is, chapter, <laughs> if you do the math, <laughs> it's exactly two weeks. Thank you, Chris, for <laughs> correcting me on that. <laughs> but in two weeks, they'll be married. And I am so excited about that because it is what we prayed for. We just wanted godly young men uh, to marry our daughters. In fact, uh, my older son-in-law, well, that's my only son-in-law right now because we've got two weeks till we get the other one, but uh, he asked for Lacey's hand in marriage, and I said to him, you're what we've prayed for, someone who loves God and loves our daughter. When you're looking for a son-in-law, what more could you ask for? I mean, you just can't. So uh, it's just amazing to see God work in all those things. And I know that you guys, uh, you have a story after. As we grow together as a family, I look forward to hearing from a lot of you what God, the path God has brought you on, what He's done in your lives. Because for each one of us, as we know from the Old Testament, iron sharpens iron. As, as 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 a countenance of a friend. So we're able to build one another up and encourage one another in what God's done in each of our own lives. It's a faith builder for us. So in verse 41, we see as Jesus draws near the city, he sees it and weeps over it. As the crowd rejoices, everyone around him is celebrating, rejoicing. Jesus weeps. Why why is that? Verse 42 through 44 in in Luke chapter 19 tells us. Let's read that again. If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because... You did not know the time of your visitation. So three things that, that jump out there in verse 42, uh, if you like to highlight or underline in your Bible, uh, mark your day. He makes reference to your day. And then also in verse uh, 42, uh, your peace. And then in verse 44, your visitation. Now it's interesting when you look at that because it is saying your, right? It's very much directed at those very people that are rejoicing right now. Your day, your peace, your visitation. Your day. What does it mean? It's the day prophecy is being fulfilled. That prophecy that we looked at in Daniel. The coming of the Messiah. He is there. His triumphal entry. Palm Sunday. All those things that we know that day as Uh, uh, by today he's saying it's your day he's speaking to these people it's your day prophecy is being fulfilled he says your peace the prince of peace has come for you and you don't recognize it this day has come and you don't recognize it your visitation you did not know the time of your visitation I came for you but you don't really know me. You don't really know who I am and what I am here for. We have the proof of that because we know within a week things are going to get really ugly, aren't they? Verse 16, back in John. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about Him, that they had done these things to him we've talked about this before how many times God has moved in our lives for reasons we can't explain just like we were saying earlier as time passes we look back and see his work in us the disciples are going through that very thing right now in this text we're going to see that later on after they receive the Holy Spirit Jesus is glorified then they remember these things The Holy Spirit gives them remembrance of those events. And again, it's a faith builder for them. Same is true with us as we look back over our lives. The Holy Spirit brings to our minds remembrance of certain events that took place that build our faith so that we can rest in that in whatever we're going through at the time or to prepare us for whatever is going to happen on down the road within the next day, the next week. He does that work in us in spite of us. Verse 17, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The witness of some of those who had seen and experienced his latest miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead, they witnessed what he had done so they could witness to others about what he had done. This should take us back to early in his ministry when the disciples were encouraging others with three little words. Come and see. We think we've found the Messiah. Oh, it can't be the Messiah. Where is he from? He's from Nazareth. Oh, nothing good came out of Nazareth. You know, well, come and see. Come and see was a phrase that was used. It's a great phrase for us today as well. Uh, this come-and-see prompt for those of us that have experienced the work of Christ in our lives. You know, not just geographically, come and see, you know, come to this place. It's not just that, but it's also that, isn't it? As we share and we're excited about what God's doing in us as a family, as a group of believers that gather here under the name Calvary Birthed, as we're excited about that, as we share that with others, we can use that phrase, can't we? Well, what's going on there? Right, come and see. Come check it out. I encourage you, just come and see. Come and see what's going on. As we go through God's Word and we learn more about Him and learn of His work in our lives. so Come and see. It's an opportunity for us to respond that same way in our lives as well. As we talk to Uh, others about Jesus as we share about the work he's done in our lives. And as they have questions and as they lack understanding, we can respond with, come and see, come and check it out. Verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So they see their plot, their plan that we've talked about over the past few weeks. yes, falling apart. It's like, Oh, nothing's working out the way we planned. Look at this. Look at all these people following him. What are we going to do? About ready to throw their hands up in the air. But what the Pharisees say here in verse 19, we could label that as two different things. We could label it as exaggeration. The whole world's gone after him. We could also label it as prophecy, couldn't we? For the whole world will go after him it's an exaggeration at this point in time but it's prophecy concerning what will happen very soon the world has gone after him we're going to see that within this same week the world will begin to see him much differently and these same people that are crying out hosanna to the king of kings are going to be crying out something completely different aren't they what crucify him that's the words that they're going to hear. Some years ago, I may have already shared this with you. If if I did, just go along with me because I'm going to say it again anyway. But uh, some years ago, when we were going to the church in Colorado Springs, Chris and I, at Calvary Chapel down there, I went to a men's coffee one morning, and there was one of the guys there that uh, he said, "I'd like to share a story with you guys." And okay, so he said, "I had a dream." A couple nights ago and he said I I'm finally just now sharing it he said because it just rocked me he said I had this dream that I was standing in Jerusalem in a crowd of people huge crowd of people and there was Jesus up high in this building and it was basically a let him go or crucify him thing going on and when that question was asked Nobody said anything. He said it was just quiet. It was still. He said it was just an awkward quiet for the longest time. He said, then the realization came to me, he's got to be crucified. He has to be crucified because without it, I have no hope. He's got to be crucified. And he said, in my dream, I was the first one to yell out, crucify him. And he said, it just rocked me. It gives me chills just thinking about it right now. You think about that. He died for each and every one of us, and he had to be crucified. It was God ordained God's ordained plan that that was going to take place. These people didn't know it in our text, did they? They didn't see that coming. They had no idea. They saw him as a king. They saw him as someone that could lead them out of bondage to Rome when he wanted to lead them out of bondage to what? Sin, sin in their lives. So this whole scene, it had to be sad for Jesus, right? For all that he had done, for all that he was there for, to just weep over that city because of what they were going to go through. Because what he had to say in Luke there about not one stone left upon another. 70 AD, we know that that came to pass, right? When everything was wiped out. And as Israel had peace since that time? <laughs> they're still looking for peace, aren't they? They're still under attack on a regular basis. They'll have it someday. We'll all have it someday when we're with the Lord. Amen? So they're hailing him as king with branches from a tree. And within a week, he's going to be hanging on a tree to be crucified. How quickly this multitude turned on him. But we can be assured, we can have confidence, and we can give praise because it was all according to God's plan. It was all according to God's design to save the world from their sin. Amen? Save each and every one of us from our sin.